Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hi and welcome to the latest episode of the Robots podcast. My name is Jana, and today's podcast is exploring human-robot interactions as models of communication with Dr. Eleanor Sandry, a lecturer at Curtin University's School of Media, Culture and Creative Arts in Australia. Her research focuses on developing an ethical and pragmatic recognition of and respect for otherness and difference in communication. She also writes about communication theory and practice. A particular interest of hers are human interactions with humanoid and non-humanoid robots. In her new book, Robots and Communication, she explores models of communication based on human-robot interactions. Our interviewer, Ron, spoke to her about the new book as well as her research and what it can tell us about how we communicate. Good morning, Elna. If I can first get you to introduce yourself to the podcast listeners. Um, hi there. Well, I'm Eleanor Sandry. I'm a lecturer in internet studies, actually, at Curtin University in Western Australia. And my broader research is about communication in, in general, not just on the internet. And I'm particularly interested in human-robot interactions and what they tell me about the ways that we can understand communication more broadly. And what got my attention to your subject was an up-and-coming book that appeared at a conference listing. If you can briefly tell us a little bit about the work on this book. Um, yeah, so the book's called Robots and Communication, and it's been published by Paul Grave in the Pivot series, which means it's kind of available online and print-on-demand. It's a short-format book, actually, 45,000 um, words, so it's shorter than your average monograph, and that's really because I wanted it to be accessible to a range of different people. Um, it's kind of pitched towards people who are interested in robots, people who are interested in communication, human communication theories. So it's kind of trying to um, cater for quite a large audience. And what it does is it looks at human-robot interactions and it tries to unpick them in some detail from a number of different theoretical perspectives. I'm particularly interested in... Uh, broadening understandings of communication beyond just the transmission of information and ideas of success that are around accurately transmitting information. I'm interested in non-verbal communication, um, the idea that communication isn't just about what we say, but it's about us um, using facial expressions, but also movements more generally. Um, and I found that robots were just a great way of looking at a huge range of different types of communication because they are sometimes built to look as human-like as possible, but on other occasions are completely machine-like. And yet what you find is that people who interact with them often develop some kind of relation to them. So even to um, a, a Roomba or one of the other iRobot um, floor cleaners, you know, people will develop some kind of relationship with that, or some people will. And um, just looking at that gives me a whole range of different forms of communication to consider and things that I can, I can say about communication in general. You speak about the idea of humanoid robots um, and uh, non-robots as a point of contact. What actually steers you towards the humanoid? Is it the facial features, uh, the, the gestures, the movements? Where are you 
you targeting that? Um, I think that most people are considering humanoid robots because of um, particularly facial um, features and expressions in some cases, but in other cases it's to do with physical ability to move around in human-like environments, um, and that's really, say, one of the reasons that the Atlas robot, which is about to compete in the DARPA challenge, is, is human-like, is because it's expected to be able to um, go and work in environments that are tailored for humans, but where humans can no longer enter, for example, because of some catastrophic um, disaster. Um, in fact, I'm much more drawn to non-humanoid robots, and I'm particularly interested in the way that people will still read pretty much anything um, that moves as somehow trying to communicate with them. And I'm also um, conscious of the fact that people who are trying to work with robots find it much easier to work with the machines better if they do develop this kind of relation with them. And so part of, um, part of the, what I've been writing in the book is actually about looking at how those relations develop and seeing the relations, say, between... Um, humans in ordnance disposal, uh, explosive ordnance disposal teams and their robots, the relationship developed between those humans and robots is not necessarily being a bad thing as being something that we should be worried about, but actually as something that allows those teams to operate better in the real-world environments in which they're placed. So um, although a lot of people say that a sociable robot needs to have, um, be able to make gestures, yes, so have arms and be able to make gestures, maybe also be able to make facial expressions, although that depends on the structure of the robot a great deal. I actually think there's a lot to be learnt from human-animal interactions, for example, and the things that um, humans and animals are capable of doing together, and that that opens up possibilities for lots of other forms of robot um, to be seen as um, effective team mates, basically. When you, when you speak about the um, human to, say, for instance, canine uh, interaction, there's this kind of trust and understanding, that is a whole different uh, facet that um, we're still kind of coming to terms with how we can do that uh, in a robot. Uh, are you picking that uh, apart and trying to figure out uh, how we can do that better? Is, is that what we... Um, yeah, I'm particularly interested in that idea of, um, of almost requiring to have a trust and respect relation. Uh, in order for the team to operate effectively together. that There will um, almost always, so say in a human-canine uh, relationship, there will always be an overarching power relation. Um, the human is almost always in control of the overall situation and is working with the dog to achieve a particular purpose, um, for instance, tracking a scent trail. Um, and the same is true with humans and robots. And in, and in fact, at the moment, say, with ordnance disposal robots, um, Broadly, the human is in control almost 100% of the time. They're still um, mainly radio-controlled or even controlled via a wire connection, um, to, to my knowledge at least. And there are some things that they can perform autonomously, like writing themselves if they've um, fallen over, and maybe also returning, returning to base as well. This is something else that I think they're working on. Um, and what, I'm, what I've been trying to unpick, I suppose, is the idea that if a robot is going to become more autonomous, so more able to enter spaces where it will be out of contact with its human controller, that there needs to be then a more complex relation between the human and the machine in order for that team to operate well. The human effectively has to relinquish control to the machine at the point at which it moves out of radio contact and um, has to trust in the robot to do its job. 
And all of these ideas, these, even the terminology of me saying to do its job, has been problematic historically in understanding human-animal relations because many behaviourists would tell you that a dog doesn't know what its job is or isn't going to take responsibility. And yet many people who train dogs will tell you that that's precisely the way that you need to think about the dog in order to understand what's happening in the team. So because you don't have the um, nasal senses that the dog does, it's actually important that you trust the dog to do its job so when it appears to be moving, say, off a trail... In fact, it's following a scent path that you have no idea that exists and it will bring you to the final point. You know, it will complete the task effectively. And I think that you know, there are possibilities that the same would be true in human robot teams as well. You know, where a robot can has senses that a human doesn't, you have to learn to trust in those senses. And I think that's a really um, it's it's an interesting way to think about these relations. Um, I think that it has possibilities practically in the robotics community, but I also think it tells me all sorts of interesting things about how humans and other things interact. The, the idea uh, in the past, we were just basically trying to use speech uh, recognition between a same robot, an object, and that being the only means of communication, of course, in the animal or non-animal world, it's not entirely true because we're looking at, or oh, correction, it's looking at gestures, the tone in our voice. Is this also something that we may not have looked at in, in the sense in, in the robotic world? Well, I think there's a tendency... It's not so much that it hasn't been looked at, actually, but it's just that the, the final goal is seen as being able to create a robot, say, that is entirely possible to um, activate with just, with just your voice, um, that will understand... Uh, human expressions and gestures perfectly. And I think that what's being missed there maybe is that the the robot could understand things differently from us. It's not actually necessary to make the robot embedded in the world in a human-like way. It can be embedded in its own way in the world and understand us in particular um, in particular ways. Even if that's, you say, using sensors on hands um, that, that, that help direct the robot, you know, actually looking at those potentials as real possibilities, not as some, a problem that needs to be overcome, if you like, I think actually has um, potential for um, just increasing the flexibility of the way that robots work. And, and the other reason I'm particularly interested in that at the moment is that um, I'm actually going to, well, I hope, start writing more in critical disability studies. And that has really opened my eyes to the fact that technologies which are currently being directed towards um, very human-like interfaces may actually make it harder for people with disabilities to interact with a robot that might otherwise be very helpful to them in living their everyday lives independently. And so really looking at a whole range of different interfaces for machines like this is probably really important and not to just think of trying to perfect the human-like, the sort of notional human-like interface. So, I just don't want them to cut down possibilities, I suppose. I think that most of these things are out there in existence. And I know that when I talk to people, sometimes the robots... I get two reactions normally. I get the people who... The roboticists who are really firmly interested in human-like form and want to make sociable robots as human-like as possible. And then I sometimes get other people that I'm talking to who are like, oh, yes, but we never make robots human-like. You know, it's all too hard. We do them this way. So I kind of get this divergent reaction... And really, I'm somewhere in the middle trying to say, well, can't we think about this differently? You know, and can't we think about this from a communication perspective? Um, well, you know, where you start seeing all the different ways 
that people and things and animals can communicate. Because you're quite right, of course, dogs don't just respond to voice, they respond to tone of voice. Um, they also understand things in ways that we can't really possibly um, fully appreciate because we just don't have the senses that a dog does. The, um, the other aspect um, I was uh, considering is that uh, we were talking about uh, robots actually un understanding us. We've got this flip side. Um, I spoke to um, a guy in the UK about uh, a thing called the uh, robot actor. Yeah. Uh, where it's the flip side. It's the en entertainment. It's a robot telling us, telling the general public what is going on, uh, with hand gestures, eye movements, etc. Actually captivating audiences. Where it's kind of the same. It, it's a teaching tool almost. Mm -hmm. I found that being very interesting. Is is that also something that um, you're looking at? Uh, I suppose it's not. Um, my primary area of interest, but that doesn't mean I don't think it's important. Um, I, th I think that sometimes when I talk, it's easy for me to get, I get kind of obsessed with all the non-humanoid robots, and it makes it sound a bit like I'm actually um, saying that, you know, we shouldn't have humanoid robots, and I, and I don't think that's, that's correct at all. I'm sure there are going to be situations where a humanoid robot works um, much better, and that is probably a very good example. So if you have a robot that you want to actually present to people and you and you want effectively to present in a human like way then you know that that is what you're aiming for you're aiming for something that kind of inspires a sense of awe maybe in the audience that they're actually that they are drawn to pay attention to it because of the um, because of its abilities if you like its human like See. abilities and its um, gaze direction etc and that that may sometimes be very important um, but I I think that thinking that that's the only way to build a robot that can be captivating or attract attention or, in fact, draw people into communication is probably incorrect and that there are other examples, certainly of robots in art, for example, where a totally non-humanoid machine obviously completely captivates its audience through its movements and the things that it does, the sounds it makes. And it's a very, it's a very different idea. It's not trying to transmit information directly but it's still building a kind of relation between the human and the machine that may lead humans to question you know, the ways that things exist in the world, which I think is usually quite a good thing. And also when things are framed by particular tasks. So um, and anything, where, um, anything where people and a robot are trying to complete a task together kind of frames the communication that takes place. And I think it um, offers many more possibilities for non-humanoid communication in that particular situation because you kind of you kind of know what you're aiming to do, and your reading your your capability to read non-verbal communication in that situation is probably much greater. But I think yeah, the example of being you know the robot up on stage, often yes, a humanoid robot is going to win the game there. Dazzle. Yeah, and absolutely yes, dazzle audiences. I mean, I've been to see Asimo, and uh, much as I'm sort of frustrated I suppose by Asimo's um, scripted interactions with humans and the kind of the way that that works I still found myself very captivated by the hand and arm movements of Asimo because they're just so fluid and interesting to watch you know so um, I'm definitely yeah I definitely don't rule them out I'm just personally I suppose interested more because I come from you know an interest in human animal communication and human robot therefore not hum non-humanoid robot are particularly interesting to me. When you look at uh, 
the history of, um, say, robot interaction uh, targeted at children. Things like um, the first uh, robot dog, um, um, Abu, and uh, all the predecessors of that, where children actually relate to that as almost as a real dog and treat it as a real dog and basically talk to it. Do you think that's the precursor to uh, a closer relationship with um, non-biological uh, entity? Well, I think it's one direction in which to go. Um, I'm slightly concerned by the idea of um, trying to create robots that effectively replace a relation that someone would have with something that already exists in the world. It's um, one of the reasons that I'm, I'm kind of not so interested in humanoid developments and also in the very animal-like robot developments, um, just because I think that uh, it may be not a good thing to replace the relations that people already have um, with living things with um, a robot equivalent. Children are a very, um, well, they're actually a fascinating example of humans who are kind of freed um, from the need to justify all the decisions that they make about how they're going to interact with something. And so, yeah, their reactions to things like um, Ivo Robotic Dog, for example, I mean, yes, there are um, strong reactions to it as, as if it was a dog. Um, understanding it's um, if, it, if something goes wrong with it that it needs to rest or sleep you know there are all sorts of examples of the things that children have said about them which show just how strong their understanding of the robot almost as if it's somewhat alive is um, and I think that's one of the reasons why I'm interested in robots that probably appear more overtly machine-like because they kind of remind you that you're in quite a complex new relationship with something that's different um, it's different from an animal, it's different from a human, it is its own thing. And um, if you unpick the interactions that take place, um, I, I say for, for example, I looked at interactions between humans and um, Guy Hoffman's robot OR, which is a, a robotic uh, desk lamp, a lighting assistant, and they did experiments together. Um, people's interactions with OR during the interaction you know, were very much as if it was a, a somewhat alive, had an aliveness all of its own, you know, not necessarily like an animal or anything else, it was an alive desk lamp, but that it was, you could still switch that machine off, it was still a machine as well, so humans are capable of holding both of those ideas, I think children may be um, less so, or just maybe less worried about that, um, so as a specific example, yeah, they, they do kind of show just how far those relations can go, um, but I suppose I'm interested in how you can signify that those relationships are actually different, that it is still a machine. I, I don't, you know, I don't really think that um, robots should or ever would really replace human-animal relations. I've just read something recently about, about um, a different researcher in Australia who has written about um, how he thinks that in the future humans will have robotic animals and um, that just immediately made me think of um, <laughs> of <laughs> do androids dream of electric sheep? Um, the original book, particularly, which is has a very strong section at the front, which is about you know the ownership of robotic animals being all that was possible for most people, and only the richest people had a real animal. You know, and that it seemed to be that kind of future mm. idea. Um, and I hope, anyway, that we're not going to go that way. In fact, no, <laughs> no. Uh, one question I think I might have posed to you uh, 
in some of the emails is the concern they're going across the entire internet about the future of uh, autonomous robots, intelligent AI intelligence being this um, Skynet, uh, Terminator kind of world from who I think are quite smart people but kind of painting the wrong wrong picture and to the general public it kind of does send the wrong signals. Um, I just wanted to see what your take of yeah. that is. Well my take of it is that artificial intelligence um, has a long way to go um, before it ever got to that kind of level but I also think that um, the way that it's being developed at the moment it, it's not necessarily ever going to be um, the same as a human-like intelligence and artificial intelligence is going to, is going to be different almost certainly um, and um, yeah in common with some other roboticists I kind of get frustrated at the, at the hype around the technology and you're right it's from um, very very respected voices that are raising these kinds of issues as being potential and in the near future as well and I and I'd simply I, I don't think it's going to happen in the near future and I don't actually think it's going to happen at the way the way that some people are suggesting it might either. Um, so yeah, I would definitely um, want to kind of draw back from that, I suppose, and just point out just how how far away artificial intelligence is from being at that level. I mean, Google driverless cars don't drive everywhere. Mm-hmm. They drive in one very particular place where it's been mapped sufficiently for them to be able to operate. And I don't even think necessarily that people are always aware of that when it's reported in the mainstream media. No, not at all. (laughs) And taking examples from that, um, even the the idea of a humanoid robot, Asimo, actually costs an awful lot of money to build. I don't even know if Sony has actually ever declared the real amount of money. I doubt very much. I mean, that robot has been in a series of developments over way well more than a decade now and still is broadly has issues in being placed into a normal physical environment and actually operating successfully. So it has to be in a kind of controlled environment. And I think that, yeah, the general public probably isn't always aware of that. The difference between seeing a robot acting in in a laboratory or in a controlled setting and actually thinking of that robot actually being able to interact in the normal physical world that we live in is something... Like completely different, it's, they are streets apart. I saw something about the um, DARPA challenge, um, and I only read this. I haven't had any time to really look into it, but I just read it in the, on a Twitter thing, you know, so 140 characters. Um, but uh, basically, explaining that they would be very impressed if one of the um, Atlas robots or any of the other bipedal robots actually managed to make it through the course without falling down. And I think that that's that's. A, a realist, that's a realistic understanding of what's possible at the moment um, and the idea that um, you know, robots with four legs might actually operate more easily in those types of environments is, is fair you know, and should be pursued as well so yeah, it's very yeah. interesting questions <laughs> Absolutely and just in previous uh, podcast uh, I was talking to some guys about soft robotics I mean that's completely going totally a very fascinating area completely uh, uh, the different direction Um, and it's early days um. yeah very early days but there's so many potentials for uh, yes so soft robotics but also uh, mixtures of soft and hard Um, I saw ages ago I don't know what happened to it you know um 
rather than using a hand-like gripper to pick things up, someone had actually developed something that could actually kind of... Uh, it was a... What was it? It was like a, almost like, like a something filled with coffee, like a beanbag, yes, yeah. that would grip. Those sorts of innovative ideas that are actually thinking of totally different ways of solving the task rather than trying to make something that has a human-like hand seem to me to offer tremendous potential. And, I, and I'm fascinated by the idea of, therefore, what a robot might end up looking like in the future. And I'm kind of encouraged that maybe robots in the future won't look like us mm-hmm. and that actually that will be a, a really good thing. Well, that's, that's another uh, human concern. Someone once put it that if we try and design something that looks so close to humans, in fact it almost mimics faith, the face is total distrust. Where if it looks like a robot, there's more trust. I think there definitely is potential. I'm, um, I mean, it kind of, whenever I write about um, robots, I always end up having to utilise the Uncanny Valley example. I'm kind of quite frustrated with it now, that idea that, you know, as a robot becomes more and more human-like, um, eventually it, it's actually read as zombie-like and there's a strong drop-off in the level of trust and uh, like for the robot. Um, with some people suggesting that obviously you could climb the valley on the other side and eventually end up, yes, with the perfect human-like um, machine. And then, as has been written about in many different science fiction books, you have the question of, well, what is the difference between the robot and the human? And Silicon versus uh, yeah. carbon. And, and I, I think, really, well, we're nowhere near achieving that moment. Mm. Even the very, very human-like faces, uh, you can pick pretty easily from the way that they, their expressions run and from other things about them. Um, but I don't know why, why we want to aim for that. You know, I think that we have... Perfection. Yes, but it's a perfection. It's, um, it seems to be a perfection that's driven by an anthropocentrism, uh, driven by an understanding of humans being the pinnacle of evolution, that, that therefore that should be the pinnacle of robotic development. And that just, um, to me, seems an unfortunate um, decision to make. There are many more options for robotics than trying to you know, achieve human-like status. I think that there are many other ways that machines could be far more interesting, far more useful, but also maybe even develop new relations with people that don't have to be like something that already exists. What about the idea of, you know, in modern-day sci-fi, the, the cyborg, the... The, um, the Borg, the... Uh... Yes, the idea of augmenting um, human ability or even um, the, the other thing within... Uh, Closing emotions. Yes, and also within disability studies, the, um, something else, the idea of fixing people, which is a, a very hot topic in disability studies. And because in, in general, uh, there are uh, many people um, with disabilities who do not wish to be fixed. You know, So, um, there's, again, it's kind of driven by this idea of... Um, the human being the current pinnacle of evolution. Let's see how far we can take it, and I, that's something that um, I, I don't know where it's. I don't know where that's going to go. I mean, um, in many ways, as um, I hesitate to mention this, but as Donna Haraway said many, many years ago in 1985, actually, we are all already cyborg. Um, I'm effectively cyborg. I wear contact lenses. That's the only way I can exist in this world. I would not be alive without mm. those developments of glasses or contact lenses. But whether or not there are so many questions around that whole area of, um, of augmentation, um, would people begin 
I've been asked this before by people, you know, will people begin to decide to amputate limbs in order to have blades because, you know, that means they can run faster, it's more efficient, or, you know, and that's another thing, of course, that in science fiction is is written about, and there's all sorts of, not just ethical questions, but bigger, bigger questions around that, I think, as well. Uh, well, you, you brought up sci-fi. Sci-fi is the sounding board, I guess, the what-if and... Yeah. Um, do you use that as a, a, a sounding board to pitch some of your ideas or your thoughts? Often I do, yes. I, in fact, in, the, um, in Robots and Communication, I actually um, I did discuss uh, data in Star Trek uh, Next Generation and also um, the Bicentennial Man, the two being very closely connected, actually. But in fact, I didn't so much discuss some of the other um, robots from science fiction. But you're right, science fiction to me is... Um, is a really great place to look because it, it, it's sometimes overlooked as being a kind of a sub-genre. It's not like real... For some people, or for many years, it was not real literature, not something that was studied much in scholarly circles, but of course it does. It provides a real sounding board. And some of the best science fiction writers, actually, they write about embedding technology in societies, whether it's a human society or some other futuristic society, in ways that allow you to really think about some of these questions in a more um, developed way because someone's written a story about it actually and that it seems to provide a really great way actually of thinking through some of the questions that if you ask them now in the here and now are very difficult to um, picture in your head mm-hmm. whereas um, science fiction provides you with those kind of thought experiments which are, can be so important. Uh, in my thesis so the book kind of came out of what I was doing for my PhD but you know I did write more about science fiction there um, Ian M. Banks um, and his idea of the culture and the human machine interactions in the culture were to me very interesting because they push way into far future you know far future ideas so yeah coming back on the idea of the um, like Metropolis the revolution the robots take take back what uh, <laughs> That, of course, is the um, the, the public uh, menace, the idea that um, technology is going to take over and uh, turn us into the matrix, and yes. etc. Is that something that you think that's going to be more and more of a problem as sci-fi seems to dwell on the bad things and not the positive things? Or is that just good for entertainment? Well, it's definitely good for entertainment. It's also a very... Um Western perspective on robots and technology, whereas in um, uh, Japanese art, manga, all of that, kind, the, the whole Japanese idea of um, technology and robots in particular is a far more positive um, side to things. And and also, you know, it's it's a great pity that we lost Ian M. Banks, actually, because there was someone writing about a utopian future that, while problematic in lots of ways, at least offered some kind of positive vision of the way that things um, could work mm-hmm. um, but you're right there's in general for big films and stuff there's I think they will still be um, often they're not exactly disaster movies are they but they they kind of um, the good guy always seems to win in the end <laughs> in the end but there's yeah. usually a potential for total and utter and um, disaster in the middle isn't there so well, um, if you look at iRobot the film not the book the robot actually does save the day with the hero yes yeah okay so, in closing, what, what do you think uh, is going to happen in the field of robotics, say, in, well, in, in Australia? Or... Australia is interesting, and I'm still trying to get to grips with what's happening in different parts of Australia. Um, 
I think that um, funding here is very, it's quite different. Obviously, the level of funding here may be very different from other countries. It's quite low. Um, but there are interesting things going on, and I would, um, I really need to spend more time getting to grips with them because um, I keep on reading things about uh, stuff that people are doing in Melbourne. There's someone doing um, uh, something with a robotic arm for uh, disabled people with disabilities, and um, I'm interested in that. There's stuff going on in the in Sydney. Um, I've I've seen people um, from the Centre for Social Robotics there, and so I'm particularly interested in what they're doing and up the coast as well. I think that ro- robotics will continue to develop here. There's probably quite a strong quite a strong drive towards actually thinking of robots in terms of self-driving machines, mine technology. You know, I mean that's always going to be a big thing in this country, I think, um, and will continue to be so. But there are definitely innovative thinkers in Australia who produce interesting solutions um, to different problems, and I would like to you know, carry on finding out what they're doing and, and writing about it, basically drawing attention to it. Okay. And um, to cap that off, uh, if I can firstly thank you for uh, giving the time to, to chat, and um, on behalf of the podcast... Thank you very much. Well, thank you for having me. It's been great to talk. And that concludes today's episode. Just visit us at robohub.org for more information about Dr. Sandre's work, as well as all our past episodes, robotics news and developments. The podcast will be back in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. With Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics.